so it's been about going on, I think, five years, Elliot, since you were last on uh, the Shallow Rewards podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. Elliot and I are currently watching Shoplifters of the World, uh, the Stephen Kayak tribute to the Smiths, which we have not watched yet. We've sort of heard through the popular and critical response that this film is not so much a film as it is a visual playlist. The reason uh, I wanted us to get there and talk is that we were both teenage Smiths fans in suburban America. And there's a pervasive and, and terribly incorrect redressing of the Smiths going on due to Morrissey's political leanings, consistent flubs from him in the press. This recent Simpsons episode, everybody just seems to be getting the Smiths wrong pretty spectacularly, especially since in America we have so little understanding of how extremely specific, not just the Englishness, but the Mancunian aspects of the Smiths color their story. So we're opening the movie, and I don't know if this is a main character, but he's wearing kind of a Susie metal necklace. That's good. We get in the overcoat. Yeah. What do you think? Did he take a like a hit from a pipe? Yeah, that's already way off. I don't know any or recall any Smiths kids that were drug users. The Smiths were like, I'm not saying they were straight edge, but like, I, I don't recall anything more than silly alcohol drinking. That's really strange. The idea that he's like fucked up. I mean, now that I'm older, it, it's not like you had to live the Smiths lifestyle or the Morrissey lifestyle or whatever we thought it was at the time to be a Smiths fan. But I didn't know anybody who smoked weed and listened to the Smiths. No, that was like, I mean, totally. That was why I was a big Cure fan because that was like totally a psychedelic drugs man. So oh, this is already so painful, man. Side one. <laughs> it's weird how this is done already. A sort of, it's like a Law and Order episode. It totally it's like, is. It's like, it's like somebody making a movie about music fans who isn't a music fan. Nobody who likes the Smiths has their wall covered in pictures of the Smiths. Yeah, you maybe would have like one poster. Like, it, it, yeah. it wasn't, yeah. It, and, and this is probably the infection of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, anytime anyone tries to make a retro 80s movie, the Transformers Bumblebee movie with the teenage girl in it. Her room is Ferris Bueller's room. Everything is Ferris Bueller's room now if you make an 80s movie. It's silly. Are they talking about how the band broke up now? Yes, it looks like <laughs> apparently in the fantasy world of this film, uh, someone watching VHF television is watching a bullet and saying that the Smiths <laughs> broke up. Um, that would never happen. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try... I, this is, so this is what I heard about this movie um, that was extremely problematic. When they ran test screenings of this film, people were like, who the fuck are the Smiths? And why are you making a movie about them? Because they'd never fucking heard of them. And so he had to, he had that to lay. That seems like the appropriate reaction. He had to lay tons of establishing footage into this movie to try and convey that this band actually even existed and was interviewed by anyone. Yeah, this reminds me of like the, the idea that you don't, you don't make the sale when you're signing the contract. You're supposed to have already made the sale. <laughs> Yeah, it's silly in that way. And then here, of course, this is this looks like some mm. kind of wonderful. You've got the outsider female character who drives the fucked up car, like the the blonde drummer in some kind of wonderful. 
um, and she drives the Mini Cooper, you know? Yeah, you could not it's get fun. the enemy. You could not get the enemy in America outside of, like, Boston and New York. That's fucking silly. Uh, is that, oh my God, it's the guy from the state. What's interesting about this is that I actually had this experience of discovering the Smiths broke up, stumbling into that information. I went to the, I walked to a gas station that was two miles from my house. This is in the suburbs in Georgia. I went to buy whatever music magazines they were going to have at that gas station because I knew they had them because I'd bought one there. It was the, that one was the first music magazine I ever bought, which was a Cream magazine with R.E.M. on the cover. It was like a kind of coming into my own moment at the time. When <laughs> I was 12, 12, I guess. And there was a magazine with Morrissey on the cover, and I was thrilled. In that magazine, it had two pieces of information in it. One was that they had an album coming out soon called Strange Ways, Here We Come. And the other was that the band had broken up. And Morrissey's interviewed in the magazine, and he said that he wasn't notified that he read it in the paper. So yeah, I had a reaction. I didn't I didn't rob a bank, but maybe I was too young. <laughs> Everyone in the Smiths considers Strange Ways the best thing they ever did. Uh, most Arch Smiths fans uh, tend to come down on that. I certainly do. And I just... You, you think, wait, you think it's the best thing they ever did? Strange Ways, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think anything else is even close. In fact, when we talk about ranking Smiths albums, I get in trouble with people because I actually think uh, it goes Strange Ways, Meet is Murder, then Queen is Dead. Like, I don't think Queen is Dead is that good. I can't stand I Know It's Over. I never liked those hoary ballads. Although I like all the songs people think are weak on Queen is Dead. Like, Vicar in a Tutu is one of my favorites. But in America, everything is about the Queen is Dead. And in Smith's fandom, it's totally not like that, in my, you know, experience. I have no idea what is generally regarded as their best stuff like i i know what i think the received wisdom is that the queen is dead is the giant canon monument that defines the smiths and like the whole beauty of the smiths is the smiths were a music fans band like the depth uh, of nods they make to musics of the past you know all the way back to the beatles but specifically glam coming out of and around queen is dead is when they do their glam singles like panic and shoplifters you know morrissey loved gary glitter and and alvin stardust and all that shit those hilariously way too old to be rocker types that were you were doing you know like Slade songs on top of the pops wearing disco ball outfits there's so much nuance and fan service in the Smiths I did have a group of friends that were into the Smiths and we we would discuss the Smiths in a way but it wasn't in a serious way it was like most of the time we just made fun of them because we loved them but we would put all our time and energy into making fun of one another about it you know it's the arch cleverness it's that put on how far can I take it playfulness of Morrissey he invites sort of exactly that like there's no angle from which you can approach the Smiths if it's an angle that involves cleverness or forethought that can be wrong. That's something that he always accepted and appreciated versus, let's say, people confronting him and confronting the Smiths about their miserableism. They got mm -hmm. just peppered with that. You know, and in America, it's how do we translate this? What does this even mean? In England, Morrissey was just picking fights with the press by making music that said, I'm more clever than you are. And it doesn't hurt that he was a music critic. Like, he shit on Depeche Mode. I mean, this is the year before the Smiths form. He trashes Depeche Mode in a review in, I think, Melody Maker. Morrissey was a known quantity, and the press definitely were pissed because the Smiths blew up so fast in England. I mean, we're talking like three months after they recorded their first single, Hand in Glove. They were on top of the pops. It's it's honestly unheard of, and, and no American's going to understand how crazy omnipresent and omnipotent the Smiths were instantly in the beginning of 1983 all the way through 87.
you were talking about the glam thing. To me, the, the there's always been sort of three or four categories of Smith song for me, and and one of them is is probably what would fall into the glam category, and I find that the most perplexing category, like uh, Sheila Take a Bow. London. Panic. Panic isn't London. Panic's the big one because Panic is Metal Guru by T-Rex. There's there's another category that's like Vicar in a Tutu, Shakespeare's Sitch, Sister. Yeah. Uh, Russell oh, Ruffians. That, yeah, there's this sort of like, uh, I don't I, I don't know what you call that. It's kind, kind of like rock, rockabilly. Like, you know, yeah, like I guess it is. What she, what she is. said. There's this fairground. I mean, this is a big thing with the Smiths. That sound that you're talking about, that's like the, the Blackpool, you know, vacation fairground um, you know, letting rip um, in working class English culture. And, and that sound, you know, um, and then particularly the songs we mentioned, Mita's Murder is the one that just just is drenched in all of this. I say this is Meet is Murder is only as good as it is because their first album was so fucking awful and they they knew it the second it came out like they hated it they hated the production they hated the performances All of that frustration is why Mita's Murder is so fucking incredible. But anyway, so there's the glam piece, and then there's like the kind of, you know, like I'm saying, fairground, skiffily kind of rockabilly. Skiffily, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. There's another one that is, in my mind, is like the truest Smith sound, which is, you just haven't earned it yet, baby, would be a good example. Um, the stuff that sounds kind of like the first album, it's a very like finger-picking, heavy, moody kind of thing, but always prickly and upbeat. Yeah, I mean, my favorite Smith song, and there's there's no hesitation, there's never been any hesitation for me, as well, I wonder, from Mita's Murder. And that is the most languid, laconic, despondent Morrissey alone in his room thing they ever put to record. But it's not the only one. There are multiple examples of that kind of thing. Um, and it doesn't mean that it has to be downbeat or downcast in the way that, like, you know, certainly Asleep is, but well, I wonder. Um, there are upbeat examples of that same thing. You just haven't earned it yet, baby, being like a signature one. Still ill, also, I think. Um, and while... Definitely. Yeah, it's still ill. That thing absolutely crushes. It's probably top five Smiths for me, especially the harmonica. Like, still ill, the bass, like Andy Rourke, just like... Man, that shit fucking kills.
there are ones that I would say are lesser in that vein. Like these things take time. Um, I don't like William. It was really nothing that much. I do love Handsome Devil and Girl Afraid. Those are like twin terrors for me. Two of their best upbeat, like you say, that 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 kind of cathedral reverberating, um, you know, fast plucking Johnny Marr guitar god shit. Yeah. Then there's this other category that's like a sort of a grab bag of weird or orphaned in my mind. Like uh, Ask is a little like that. Um, Stretch Out and Wait is like that. They don't seem to belong to a general. There's not a lot of other, other Smith songs like that. Ask is an absolutely like I, when I think of every Smith song, people always say like, you know, oh, Golden Lights isn't a Smith song that's too weird oscillate wildly rubber ring like no no no. those are all fine those are just experimental little smithing the smith song that sounds the least like the smiths to me almost is ask it's a stupendous pop song but it is almost a bit too far it's so love me do and yet it still contains all the essence and essential aspects of the smiths you know if it's not love, then it's the bomb that will bring us together i mean that's as morrissey as it gets and yet that song is so ebullient and the production almost points, right, doesn't it, to Morrissey's solo stuff? It sounds like it should be on Bone of Drag. To me, Bone of Drag is, is the high point of solo Morrissey. 100%. And, and I guess he kind of disavows that at this point. What happened with that whole period, like including the debut, the, Vinnie Riley wrote the debut, okay? But Stephen Street claims he wrote it. And Morrissey, they all fell out. Like, it was this whole fucking nightmare. Like, it, whenever there's tension or a problem, Morrissey just walks. And everyone else can figure it out. And then when they're figured it out, they'll come back and talk to him again. That's the way all of his relationships work. He just That's fucking, boy. he fucking bails when there's a problem. And there were problems in the attribution and contributions to all of his solo stuff. I still think Vauxhall is his best individual effort because Bond and Drag is a compilation. And much in that way, we were talking about favorite Smiths records. Hatful of Hollow is a compilation, so it really can't count when you talk about the best Smiths right. record. By far, Hatful of Hollow is the best Smiths release. I don't think anyone who's a fan of the band, I, I kind of feel like you need to have that opinion. What do you think? I have that opinion. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to get there, but ultimately that's, that, that's what I'd have to pick. That single was so strong, hand in glove, that it it made their entire debut album a mulligan. The, the fans didn't care that it was really bad. <laughs> Smith's fans, the, the sort of the base was music fans. That's the trick the Smiths pulled. They got all the music fans who didn't have good enough bands that seemed to have a rich enough understanding of music versus fashion and belonging. Like music is not necessarily about a scene, it's about a continuity of a thing meaning something to me. To me, the, the Smith's music has always been very intensely personal music. It's, it's not scene-building music at all. You get the sense that Morrissey felt that way about it. The Smith's original not-that-great bassist, Dale Hibbert, he's on record as saying that in conversations with Marr and Morrissey, that they were going to market themselves as a gay band. Like, they were overtly going to court a gay image. And now, now Marr has been married to his teenage sweetheart. Like, they met when they were 15 and they've been together their whole lives. Morrissey has publicly come out and said that, you know, in his mid-30s, he finally had, you know, a meaningful relationship in his life and it was with another man. In the 80s, though, Morrissey was consistently pushing this button. And a lot of the critics and a lot of people were starting to get a little bit pissed off because he wanted to have it both ways, talking about celibacy, which was 
a totally alien concept, you know, in, in 1985 anywhere. Yeah, I, rem- I do remember. That's a button no one was pushing, really, unless you talk about, like, you know, Boy George. It, no one was pushing it in a way that wasn't cartoonish. Well, uh, Ian Mackay. What? <laughs> That that was the con when I finally got into Fugazi. That was my context for um, for Ian Mackay. I was like, oh, he's like Morrissey. The one place I would say that Ian Mackay is a great parallel for Morrissey is his precociousness, which because he was a fucking kid, what did he know? But he was so serious about what he was doing and what he was thinking, and you know, Morrissey was very much like that. It's funny because given all the controversy around Morrissey these days, in the eighties, he was. In the early 90s, he was being interviewed all over the place, and he fucked with the... He was playful about his image. It was very clear he didn't have... He didn't feel obligated to speak the truth to the media, which is now considered utterly blasphemous and and inconceivable that it, that somebody's not seizing this as an opportunity. I remember listening to this picture disc thing that my friend had. It was an interview from Morrissey did in Australia when he was with the Smiths, and he's just goofing around. And he's giving half answers. He's sort of saying one thing and then contradicting himself, but laughing about it. That was the first time I'd ever heard anything like that. And I remember it kind of opening my eyes to, oh yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to tell the truth to somebody just because they want to ask you questions. This is just somebody who's making money off of your music and you can say what you want to them and it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's fine. And I love that. And it's, that's been totally lost. It, and, it's, and Ian, Ian Mackay has a similar dismissive view, I feel like, of the media and interviews and stuff, but he doesn't goof around with it as much as Morrissey did. It is one of the things that is so tragically lost. Bands now are coming out and like they're marketing themselves by discussing their mental health struggles. Like that's th- their only concern is convincing anyone reading about them that they are credible and damaged uh, or that they've they're a survivor they're marketing their flaws because that is a form of authenticity i guess in today's dialogue the way in which that demystifies and debases pop music as a platform for people to like fuck around they were giving us as their fans the ability to laugh at the press and at the people who demanded outcomes and expectations that we didn't give a shit about it was much truer when you had no idea if it was true or not. The 80s bands that we loved had either at, at base an adversarial relationship with the press or at least a suspicious one. People love to talk about all the different reasons that music it doesn't have the kind of cultural cachet anymore. It doesn't have the ability to impact people's lives necessarily the way it used to. But I would say the behavior of the musicians themselves is probably at the core of it to me. No matter how quickly or or how fickle the audience is, how quickly they hear everything and how fickle they are about what they hear, there's still always the potential to make yourself a star. And that is all about how you carry yourself. And uh, man, those books have been burned. Like no one knows how to do it anymore.
The scene that we're watching right now is uh, the, the little, you know, core group of Smith's outcast fans, one of whom bizarrely is dressed like Madonna, you know, getting into it with some jocks. And the jocks are actually even worse in terms of being period accurate. This is so weird, This the way that they're portraying this Smith's fan scene. There's like a secret knowledge that, that they all share. It's such a strange fantasy of the... of. Not just the Smiths, but with anything. It's like, I, I don't, I've been into a lot of stuff over the years and it's very rare that it creates, I mean, I can't think of a single time that it's created a, a situation where you dwell within it and, and it creates like a, a lexicon amongst you and your fellow participants that you're like, oh, now we, we get it and no one else does. And now we have this world of rules that, that only we understand. It's like nobody would dance at a party. You, you wouldn't get off the couch. Yeah. And the idea that they're like, they, they're empowered by their Smiths fandom or that it lends them confidence because the four of them like the Smiths is absolutely fucking ridiculous. I mean, I think... If anything, it makes you feel like the only place that you're safe is in your bedroom. You can't go out with the Smiths as your armor. That's not how this works. And that's what this film is portraying in this scene. Talking about a scene like this, it, it reminded me of the scene of the people changing the tape in the party and say anything. It's a still shot of the of the piece of shit like Fisher, you know, sound design all in one wood sided rack unit with all the different modules in it. And it's just shots of kids pulling out the fucking tape that's playing, putting in their tape and it gets stuck and they rip the fucking tape out and then they put in another tape and hit play and then like, you know, it's like party foul. Like, you know, you don't let the song play for two minutes, you're an asshole. And it's just that moment to me is one of the only realistic moments of of what kind of like teenage party or, or having different tastes, competing tastes, wanting to have an identity, um, wanting to be heard. You don't hold up a radio station and tell them to play the Smiths. The biggest moment of bravery in your life is that you got up off the couch at a party you didn't want to go to and you were scared shitless of getting your ass kicked and you change the music. She said he never really looks at me. I give him every opportunity. In the room downstairs, he sat and stared. In the room downstairs, he sat and stared. I'll never make that mistake again. I think there's something about him that puts to to poetry, really. It's music, but it's poetry. It puts to poetry the kind of vexation of being an emotionally attuned or, or a consistently overwhelmed young man in a culture that just has so many expectations of young men. I think there's a frizzle on there that, that is um, a tension that is pretty universal. And that's the piece to me where the Smiths can make sense outside of Manchester. Outside of, well, he's from Macclesfield and he's from Salford and, and he's from Ardwick. Like, the, the specificity and, and tininess and minuteness of character, family, lineage, and place in England, none of that's going to come over here. And so we lose that aspect of the richness of the Smiths. But I do think there is an eternal kind of male anxiety and angst that Morrissey really put there in a way that no one else did, not in pop music. The Smiths were putting in the foreground emotions that men weren't the young men boys weren't ready to take seriously take their own feelings seriously and here was somebody very cool weirdly kind of against the world that was doing that was doing just that and it was very validating 
if you were the right kind of person. Yeah, there's a, there's a homecoming to the Smiths. And, and I think that's true of any kid at any time that hears this band. Top three favorite Smith songs. Top three favorite Smith songs. Talking before about the, uh, the these sort of three or four different categories of Smith songs. They're that glam sort of sound, that sort of louder... Probably at the time I thought of it as like leaning towards punk, but that's not what it was. It was London I is mean, punk. What she said. Um, what she said is punk. That sound. I was. I was just always wrestled with it. Like I. I mean, it was a foregone conclusion that I would make myself like any Smith song. But like songs like "Sweet and Tender Hooligan." What's that song in "Strange Ways" about the music industry? Those were always so weird to me. Um, and I was like, I, I kind of have a hard time with them. Even even like Panic, I have a hard time with. I mean, I like these songs mostly because of the, the lyrics. The way in which Morrissey is able to very easily transition to having Boz Borer and this kind of like rock and roll guitar right. band behind yeah. him, yeah. that yeah. works because it's always been there. But Americans, I don't feel in the broad strokes, ever understood that the Smiths were appreciated as a fucking rock band in England. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely did not understand that. I, it took me a while. I remember when the uh, Morrissey at K Rock, I guess it's an EP or something. It's one of the you best. Know, you know? It's one of the best things ever released. The version of my love life on that is I, oh my god. makes sense i mean given what what morsey's put out since then and, and that has the 15 then, minutes of phone voicemail messages at the end yes of it, yeah that's right that were phoned into k-rock and it's like oh my god Morrissey, yeah. i love you yeah, which I, which i i heard with with almost no feelings of irony at all i was just oh like, none zero that could be that could be me yep i was like is my am i on here <laughs> okay miriam you're on the air talk to morrissey
One of the ones that always stands out to me and that I still carry very close is Gene, the B-side to this charming man. Morrissey's pretensions to Oscar Wilde, to, to Sheila Delaney, to, to all of the kitchen sink drama, everything, all of that, that Englishness, that, that sad, downtrodden, working class poverty, all of that is so explicit to the point of parody in Gene. I think of it in the same way that people always said that Shakespeare's sister was supposed to be on the album, but they held it off for a single. And that's the thing that used to happen. If you had like too many strong songs, they wouldn't all go on the album because it'd be a waste because you need a single. And that happened a lot with the Smiths. One of the things I like about Gene is that it's kind of a shitty song, how it's written. It's and I and it's kind of endearing though. It's it sounds to me like the kind of song a band that was starting out would write. Didn't really have it have a sound going yet, you know? It's just kind of like a, a shitty alternating chord progression, you know what I mean? The last really big influence on Johnny Marr was James Honeyman Scott, the guitarist from the Pretenders. I think Marr's quote on it was he was like, that's the last bit I needed. He's like, that's the thing I needed to get my sound right. I had to take a little bit from him because to that point, a lot of it is coming from the Carlos Alomars and, and whatever, the Bowie and, and the Rex and, and then the Beatles, of course. But when he heard what Honeyman Scott was doing with reverb and chorus, he was like, oh shit. And that guy, honestly, like forget Peter Hook playing the bass up high and all these other signature things that, you know, Robert Smith's little teardrop guitar sound or whatever, the Fender Bass 6. Um, Honeyman Scott's guitar on the Pretenders records, the first two Pretenders records, is like so monumentally influential on everything that happened in the 80s. Uh, and he just, he should roll off the tongue is my point. Certainly in as much as Johnny Marr does. Gene is one of those ones where it's like, that's a Pretenders song when I hear it. You know, there's a few of those in the Smiths catalog where I'm like, yeah, that's, Chrissy should be singing that one. My best friend in junior high and high school was this guy, Chad. And Chad uh, got into the Smiths with me. But Chad was quite well off. And he would buy, he would go to Wax and Facts in Little Five Points in Atlanta. And he would just buy every Smiths import that they had. And it was unheard of, you know, like in those days, like to go to the record store and buy $500 worth of records. But that's what they would do. Wow, dude. Brother. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and the same went for when we were both into the Misfits, just getting all this cough cool seven inch before anybody had could get that. Dude, that goes for like and 10 grand today. FYI. I know. Anyway, so he would buy all these Smiths records. And, and like I mentioned, a picture disc interview from Australia like he would buy that stuff and then he would just let me tape all of it so I had all these tapes of all this really cool obscure stuff that I was just building through the years and I was fine with having it on tape that was no big deal because I, I was Duh. I was just into it so yeah Gene was like something he brought into my world along with a bunch of stuff 
like the like uh, stuff outside the music, like uh, Morrissey's interest in the collector, the uh, Terrence Stamp photo from the collector on the cover of one of the Smiths singles. You know what I'm talking about? They didn't the glass of milk. Yeah, they didn't get. Um, they they it originally was released with it, but then um, they, he was like, "Who the fuck no?" And they came back and they they hadn't cleared the photo, so Morrissey had to <laughs> Morrissey had to do an impression of it for the next one. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a classic. All those album covers, the typefaces, everything. It's all Morrissey. He had those. I believe it. He had those pictures in mind the whole way. He had it all planned out. That that's something he has never gotten credit for. These are some of the most iconic. And the funniest thing is, they're they're like already famous images in most respects. Yet somehow, and that's that to me that feeds into like how what we're talking about about what to make of the Smiths and like he was bringing all his stuff. He was a fan of into what he was doing, but he's like inscribing his own reality into those things. On his own terms. He's not claiming that they're the definitive statements of those things. He's not claiming to be the authority on James Dean. He's he's his own authority on James Dean, what James Dean means to him. And he like takes his the stuff that he's a fan of and shares it with us in the way that he likes to think about it. And I, to me, that's the way I treat the Smiths. It's uh, like, I think about the Smiths the way I want the Smiths to be. So did you know people in high school who were into the Smiths? Yeah, a few. I mean, it was, again, it, like, I mean, when we were in high school, the big thing pre-Nirvana was, uh, for Anglophile kids, was Madchester and Baggy. And um, so it was like fucking Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Second Summer of Love. Then that Laws record came out. And again, the funny thing here that ties in, I've repeatedly talked about a, a Shallow Rewards video I never made called The Smiths is Dead. And what it was about was all the fucking bands that got signed because the Smiths broke up. The fucking wedding present, it goes for the Sundays, it goes for like so many fucking bands. I mean, remember Gene? The Sundays. Remember Gene? Like, there were other bands too, like the Wooden Tops, fucking the House Martins, dude. Why'd the House Martins get signed? Because of the Smiths. Everything in English music that wasn't, you know, part of the acid house explosion into Manchester, everything was about how much it did or didn't sound like the Smiths. That was how you got signed. 
apart from really awful self-parodic tribute acts like Bell and Sebastian, Bell and Sebastian, where do we find the influence of the Smiths? I would say I hear it in the Stone Roses debut album. John Squire was a total Johnny Mart protege in so many respects. Those are bands that are happening sort of at the time. Where do where does what the Smiths did actually land musically? There's lots and lots of bands out there that love the Smiths and grew up listening to the Smiths, but like, where do we hear the Smiths? I don't know. Uh, the Stone Roses is a, is a suitable basis for a comparison, but it doesn't have anything going. Like the the thing that makes the Smiths so weird is Morrissey. There's just tons of poetic information in Smith songs that you don't hear in many bands at all. Like, forget Morrissey as a persona. Think about him as a lyricist and a songwriter. Who has the fucking stones to write the kind of shit that he wrote and sing it not only with a straight face, but with this arch theatric commitment? Morrissey's, like, full of comedy. Okay, full is a little strong, but Joan of Arc with the Walkman kind of thing, that's not a... You're supposed to laugh at that, and some girls are bigger than others. It's a funny song. And if you think that, like, There's a Light That Never Goes Out is, like, 100% serious... No, no one does. I mean, I... It's no wonder that... It's no wonder you get mad at Morrissey for saying stupid shit. Oh, in that way. It's like, in that way, I hear you. You know, it's like... You. if you don't If you don't understand the, the humor of that song, I mean, and of so many songs, you know, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, like, I was looking for a job, and then I found a job, and now I'm miserable. Like, you're supposed to be laughing at him, at yourself, at being alive. That should extend in all interpretations of the Smiths, I feel like, or Morrissey. And and you were talking about, like, doors that the, the Smiths opened for, for young people or whatever. Being able to laugh at yourself for being too serious in, in the way that you would with, like, a, a good friend who is also too emotional, you know? Like, that's something that no nobody has done very effectively ever, but, like, the Smiths did wonderfully. How much do teenagers need that? How much is that a part of why the Smiths became such a heartstring thing for the 14, the 15-year-old kid, overwhelmed with emotions? Hearing these songs that go to that place, you know, hearing asleep, I don't want to wake up on my own anymore. That's scary. People, I And mean, that's, like, guidance counselor suicide alert song. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like that's on the list that gets passed around the school. But this is the same artist that sings uh, what she said and I smoke because I'm hoping for an early death. For an early and death. I, and yeah, I need to yeah. cling to something. Even though I was, I mean, in, in a way I couldn't possibly be more serious about my love of the Smiths. But like not being able to laugh about them seemed like a, a really weird, incomplete appreciation that occasionally you would meet somebody like that. This is an audience that should not be this fragile. This is an audience that should not be this thin-skinned. The things that yes, the things that Morrissey went through, the things that he was a voice for. This guy did so fucking much for outcasts, for you know people who were alone, couldn't make meaningful relationships, were homosexual, whatever. This guy did more than anybody I can think of in the '80s as a pop musician. Let's say to advocate for that. The guy called his fucking seminal album "Meat Is Murder" was a you know screaming vegan. 
What the fuck? Like who else was doing this leg work? We're gonna erase all that because he's got a little bit of a crotchety beer belly thing going on when he's like, you know, in the the second half of his life. Who gives a shit? The death of a disco well, it happens a lot around here And if you think peace is a common goal That goes to show how little you know The of a disco dancer Well, I'd rather not get involved Very nice. 